0: Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by
1: Verse Ministries.
2: To the tragedy of the people of Nazareth is that by rejecting the truth about Christ, they robbed themselves of any hope. Hope was standing right before them the only hope of divine forgiveness, the only hope of eternal life, and they missed it. They missed their Messiah because they rejected the clear evidence and they were proud and stumbled over the truth, even though the truth stood right in front of them.
1: The people of Nazareth sound like people of today. We hear the same excuses they gave for not placing their trust in Jesus as the promised Messiah as we encounter today when we ask folks to place their faith in him as Savior and Lord, and the basic reason is stubborn pride. This is Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today's class is the final of three parts to a message entitled The Rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. If you have missed the first two parts in this study, you can listen to them by going to our website versebyverseradio.org Click on Message Archive and then Sort By Date. There are many other classes available for free downloading. Now with today's study, here is Pastor Steve.
2: Secondly, his miracles. Jesus said in John 5.36, The very works that I do testify of me that the Father has sent me. His very miracles proved it because the prophetic scripture said that the Messiah would come doing miracles. And then listen to this in John chapter 10, starting at verse 37, Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. What he's saying is if, if the, my teaching doesn't catch you, let my works be the evidence. If you can't get it by my verbal teaching, which they should have gotten it, at least recognize that these miracles, these works come from God. But they didn't. In fact, you know who got it right? The man who came to Jesus. He sort of got it right. The man who came to Jesus at night, Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, we read about a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, one of the leading religious figures in Jerusalem. He was part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Israel, religious ruling council. And he said to Jesus in John chapter three, verse two, listen to this. He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus understood that Jesus Christ's miracles and his teachings proved that he was from God. And I said Nicodemus sort of got it right. He understood somewhat, except he didn't realize that Jesus was not a teacher who came from God. Jesus was God who came to teach. But at least Nicodemus understood that his content, what he had to say in his miracles, pointed to him as Messiah and King. So the clear evidence that God had provided for the people of Israel to recognize their king when he arrived were his teachings and his miracles. But instead of receiving this evidence, this is the absurdity. This is the way unbelief acts. All that the people of Nazareth focused on were irrelevant questions. Like, how could this hometown boy teach like this and have this kind of power? What difference does that make what his hometown was? They could have easily read, and they certainly knew, should have known from Micah chapter 5, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Should have known that. That he had to be born amongst someone in Israel. They could have asked Joseph and Mary, and they probably would have known he came from Bethlehem. I mean, what kind of a question is that? How could this hometown boy teach us like, like this? The Lord had to be born in some family in Israel See, in their hardness of heart, they didn't even recognize the clear evidence for him being the Messiah. All they did is think of him as simply a carpenter from a very common family in their town. Folks, what they did is, the, the thought here is they just focused on irrelevant issues, non-important issues, instead of the facts, like the contents of what Christ was teaching. That's what they should have focused on. Is this true? His miracles, who else could do these miracles but, but deity, and as Jewish people, they were all aware of the prophetic scriptures. They knew that, that they could recognize their Messiah by, by his miracles and his teachings. This shouldn't have taken them by surprise. But what does this tell us about hearts when they're hardened towards the gospel? It tells us that in order to justify unbelief, hardened sinners will come up with all kinds of irrelevant reasons for not believing in Jesus, such as there are too many hypocrites in the church. That's why I'm not a Christian. Or I don't like that pastor. He preaches too long. Now, that wouldn't be the case with anybody here. I know that, but some might say that. Or that Christian wasn't friendly to me. Or that Christian once came on too strong in witnessing and told me I was going to go to hell if I didn't accept Christ. Listen, if somebody starts giving you those kinds of reasons for not believing in Jesus, understand that they're excuses. And understand that the reasons for for what they're doing, they are smoke screens. Smoke screens to divert attention away from the real issue. And what is the real issue? It's Jesus Christ Himself. And that's what you have to do in a witnessing situation. Don't let them take you down all those rabbit trails. It doesn't matter there are hypocrites in the church. It doesn't matter. If they don't like the pastor, it doesn't matter. What matters is Christ himself. So what you need to do, and someone starts talking like that, bring the conversation back to Christ. What do you think of Jesus Christ? They probably hadn't even thought about him. How do you explain his perfect life? How do you explain his profound teaching? How do you explain his supernatural miracles? How do you explain the resurrection? How do you explain that men died because they knew he was risen from the dead. How do you explain all these things? How do you explain lives being changed by Christ? Folks, that's the real issue. It's Jesus himself. Don't let people take you down all those trails that are irrelevant. But the foolish people of Nazareth chose to reject the obvious evidence for him being king. I think it's just absurd. Nobody said, now, let's see if what he's saying is true. Let's search the scriptures. Or how else would you explain his miracles? But they didn't do that because they're hardened unbelievers. They didn't want to believe in him, so they chose to ignore the truth about him by speaking nonsense about him being a carpenter from their town. Isaiah 53 already said that there would be nobody impressed by how he looked physically. So they should have known this. It's very normal natural for him to be just a carpenter, a common, ordinary-looking person who happened to be God in their midst. So the first characteristic of hardened unbelief is that it rejects the obvious evidence for Christ being king. So when you're witnessing, you bring that evidence into the light. The second characteristic of hardened unbelief is that it stumbles over Christ because of pride. Pride. That's the real issue here. Notice verse 57. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, after stating how common and ordinary Jesus was, Matthew tells us that the people of Nazareth took offense at him. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means they were offended by his claim to be their Messiah and king. The word offense essentially means to stumble. It means to trip over something. That's precisely what the people of Nazareth did with Jesus they stumbled over his humble background as a carpenter in their village and so they refused to see him as their Messiah they stumbled over his lack of formal theological education so they refused to see him as the divine rabbi they stumbled over him as being one of their peers whose mother and siblings lived amongst them and so they refused to see him as their king and because he was so common and ordinary at least in their minds that they were offended that he claimed to be their Messiah and King. See, the real issue here, notice this, is that it was their pride that caused them to have a problem with Christ. They just could not bring themselves, I should say would not, bring themselves to submit to someone who they saw as a peer and an equal. Their pride would not allow. In other words, they refused to see him as someone who was superior to them because to them, he wasn't superior at all. He was just a local guy who was now claiming to be something special. They wouldn't have it. Now, we're not told by by Matthew exactly what Jesus said that day. In fact, we're not told at all what he taught in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. But we certainly know based on other times that we're told Jesus taught that he must have presented himself as Messiah, as king. He must have told them they were sinners in need of repentance and they needed to submit themselves to him as their Lord. And that's what they were offended at. Because they weren't going to humble themselves by repenting of their sin and yielding themselves to the carpenter's son. They're not about to do that. See, it was their sinful pride that blinded them to Christ being their king. They would not allow themselves to see him as anything other than one of their equals. And so they stumbled over his claim to be greater than they were. It's their pride. And Jesus knew that was the issue. He understood that. That's why he said at the end of verse 57, this very famous saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This was a very well-known proverb at the time. Jesus was not the first to say it. He said it on a number of occasions, but the rabbis had said this. It's in rabbinical literature. It's just a a generally well-known proverb of that time. And let let me explain this because this can be misunderstood. He wasn't saying that a prophet is always honored wherever he goes, except in his hometown and by members of his family. Because you know what? That's not always the case. The prophets of Israel were often despised and dishonored by the entire nation. Jeremiah being a prime example of that. They hated him. But what Jesus meant by this proverb is that even when those times come when a prophet is honored, and there are a few times like that by others, those who are most familiar with him from his hometown and family, they don't honor him because they find it difficult to think of one of their own as being different and greater than they are. So he's saying there are times when prophets are honored, but on those few occasions, they're not honored by those that they grew up with. We have a similar proverb. It's not exactly, but you'll understand this. We say familiarity breeds contempt. That's, that's the thought here. The people are so familiar with, with Jesus, having grown up with him that they don't see him as anything special. And they do hold him in contempt for claiming to be better and superior to them. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's sort of what he's saying. It's in the ballpark. So you see, folks, the the root sin behind hardened unbelief is simply wicked pride. I understand that. And it was brashly exhibited by the residents of Christ's hometown. Who does he think he is coming in here as if he was better than us? But understand, this is the way that hardened unbelief always Behaves And pride can come with with all kinds of excuses for not repenting and yielding to Christ's lordship. With the residents of Nazareth, it was their mistaken belief that Jesus was common and ordinary and no better than they were. And they were not going to have him reign over them because they didn't see him as better than they were. With other people, it can be anything from thinking that they're good and therefore they have no need to repent and submit to Christ not going to have Christ reign over them because they don't need anyone reigning over them. They're good. They don't need a savior or to thinking that God doesn't exist. And therefore they have no need of him in their lives. I mean, people come up with all kinds of excuses, but the bottom line reason why hardened sinners refuse to believe in Christ, regardless of the reasons that they give is because they're proud. They're self-sufficient. And therefore they refuse to let Christ reign over them. They love their sin, they love ruling their own lives, and they're not about to relinquish control over their lives to Christ. Now, now, maybe they don't articulate that. Few do, but that's really the issue. And we know that because Jesus taught that. In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, these are marvelous verses for you to know. Jesus, he just nailed it. This is, this is the reason why people react this way. Listen to John three nineteen. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. He is the light, he means. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. People want to stay in the darkness. They don't want to have their deeds exposed by Christ. For everyone, he said, who does evil hates the light. This is why people hate Christ. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When you come to Christ, you come repenting of your sin. You come with full exposure. This is what I really am. I'm a wicked sinner. I'm lost. I'm hostile towards God. But pride is what causes people to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to change. I don't want him to reign over me. So they come up with all kinds of, as I said, smoke screens. But the real issue is their their pride. People reject Christ simply because they love their sin. Their sinful pride drives them to keep control over their own lives, even if they pretend that something else is the real issue. It's not the real issue. And, And I can't think of a better illustration of this than in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'd like you to see this. Peter wrote his second letter to warn the, the various churches and Christians that there were false teachers who had infiltrated their churches. And he describes what they're like. And, and in chapter 3, he speaks about a specific doctrine that they were beginning to deny, these false teachers, and it would only continue and get worse as we moved along in history. And you can see it today in the whole creationism debate and intelligent design debate. But listen to Second Peter chapter 3, Starting in verse three, Peter said, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And here's what they're going to say, saying, where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So what they're saying is, yeah, you, you Christians say that Jesus is coming back again. He's coming to judge sinners. But we look around and everything's the same. Nothing changes. It's all uniform from creation on. Now, we don't need to go into it now. You can always get the CDs on, on this when we studied this. But um, Peter answers that things have not always continued the way that people might think. They've continued. But what I want you to notice is what's really behind their mocking. What is behind the scoffers who ridicule Christianity and especially the second coming of Christ? Notice the end of verse 3. Peter tells us, following after their own lusts. In other words, the mockers love their sinful lifestyle called here their lusts, their desires. And they have no intention of changing. And that's the reason that they mock the return of Christ. You see, they may hide behind intellectual arguments, so-called science. But their real motivation for mocking Christianity is that they don't want to believe in a God who will hold them accountable for their behavior. And when he returns, will judge their sins. And so they choose to mock and scoff. But the real issue is their own behavior. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. Aldous Huxley was a well-known atheist of the 20th century, a man who honestly admitted his dislike for the Bible stemmed from his escape, or at least his attempt to escape, feelings of guilt. Here's what, what Aldous Huxley wrote about this. I quote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, he said, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. He's simply saying that he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And that's why it was very, very satisfying for him to be an atheist. There is no God. Do whatever you want. But there was an ulterior motive behind that belief. So in the reaction of the people of Nazareth, we've seen two characteristics of hardened unbelief. Number one, it rejects the evidence for believing in Christ as king. And understand people you witness to, that's what they're dealing with. That's why they come up with all this stuff. But bring it back to the person and work of Christ. Secondly, hardened unbelief stumbles over Christ simply because of pride. That's what drives people. It's their sinful pride. They don't want to humble themselves and submit and have Christ reign over them. They love their sin unless God does a work of grace in their hearts and brings them to a point where they no longer love their sin. They're going to continue to reject him because they will not change. The third characteristic of hardened unbelief is simply this. It robs itself of any hope. It robs itself of hope. It's its own worst enemy. Verse 58. And he did not do, Matthew says, many miracles there, meaning in Nazareth, because of their unbelief. What a tragic statement or a tragic situation. This certainly doesn't mean, keep in mind, doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't able to do many miracles in Nazareth because his power was limited. The Lord's power is never limited wasn't restricted. It simply means that he chose not to do many miracles there because of the unbelief of the people. Here's something that you should always keep in mind. Jesus did miracles for only two types of people. Number one, he did miracles for the sake of those who had already had faith in him. And he did that to strengthen their faith. But there were many people that the Lord did miracles in their lives, healings and casting out of demons who had no faith in him, but they were not hardened in their unbelief. They were certainly open to believing in him, but they were not hardened rejectors of him. But the Lord never did miracles for those who had a hardness of heart. You recall there were times where the Jewish leaders said, show us a miracle in the skies and the heavens. And the Lord didn't do that. So the only miracle you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, the prophet, the resurrection. He didn't do miracles for those hardened in unbelief. Why? Because he wasn't a circus act. He wasn't about to entertain people to satisfy their curiosity about him. And that's the case here. The Lord wasn't about to do many miracles. did not say he didn't do any, but he didn't do many miracles there because there was such unbelief there, hardened unbelief. See, the tragedy of the people of Nazareth is that by rejecting the truth about Christ, they robbed themselves of any hope. Hope was standing right before them. It's the only hope of divine forgiveness, the only hope of eternal life, and they missed it. They missed their Messiah because they rejected the clear evidence and they were proud and stumbled over the truth, even though the truth stood right in front of them. Think about this. The people in Nazareth who rejected him have been in hell for over 2,000 years and they have that memory. It was the carpenter's son and we missed it. It was, it was Yeshua is what they would have called him, Yeshua of our own village and we missed it. I hope you haven't missed it. You've been in a church hearing the gospel Have you missed it? Have you rejected the clear biblical evidence for Jesus being God because you've chosen to focus on irrelevant stuff about other Christians? What nonsense. Have you stumbled over Christ because of your pride? If that's the case, then humble yourselves. That's why Jesus said to be converted, you have to become like a little child. Come to Christ knowing that you're a sinner, knowing he's the Savior. You trust him to be your personal Savior. And you commit your life to following him. Let's bow for prayer. I'm going to give you a few moments to meditate on these truths and examine your own heart. Have you stumbled over Christ? Has familiarity bred contempt? Have you been so familiar with Jesus? Maybe you've grown up reading the Bible. Maybe you've, you've been listening to sermons. You, are, you certainly have exposure to Christ but you've never really pondered who he is. You've never really pondered that you need to trust him. Let him reign over you, or someday you will regret that. Father, thank you for this episode that you've put in your word to teach us. Lord, we're, we're in the school of discipleship too. And I, I pray that what we've learned today has given those of us who know you very encouraging and helpful insight into witnessing. And Lord, some of us have experienced our families being hard on us and not wanting to learn from us. I pray you'll encourage us by this passage of Scripture that even even the Lord himself went through this. But I pray, Lord, that more than that, you'll help us to be bold and courageous in our witnessing and to never drift away from the real issue, which is Christ himself. Father, I would pray for those who may be very familiar with you, and still, it's never broken upon their souls that you are Lord God Almighty. They just consider you somebody they've always known about, but Lord, they don't know you. I pray that you'll break upon their souls the truth, that you are the Lord, that they are sinners, they need to humble themselves before you and be saved. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.
1: That is a solemn admonition for each of us to examine our understanding of who Jesus really is. Today he waits to be your Savior. Tomorrow he may be your judge. Trust him now and ask him to forgive your sins and be the Lord of your life. Thank you for joining the class today. If you have any questions regarding this study or anything in the Christian life, please don't hesitate to call us. The phone number is 727 727- 239 When you call ask about our free book offer Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd It will be a great spiritual help to you Our website is versebyverseradio.org While there you can sign up for our free quarterly newsletter as well as for our free podcasting service That way you won't miss any programs even if you can't tune in to this radio station That's versebyverseradio.org. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel located at 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater, Florida. We depend on the Lord's people who have been blessed by Steve's teaching to pray and give financially to this ministry. We are very grateful for your faithfulness in this matter. In tomorrow's class, we'll begin looking at the murder of John the Baptist from Matthew 14. Plan to be with us. Until then, I'm your announcer, Jerry Pruden.
0: Encouraging you in Christ. Long before the pain, God was there. Long before the struggle, God was there. Someone want to ask somebody that was going through a trial and where was God when the tragedy happened? The answer was the same place he was when it was all good. Faith Talk 570 and 910 WTB. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.